Welcome to Freely Filtered, the increasingly regular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest talk with your doctor rather than take advice from self-appointed experts on a podcast. Your health is important. Treat it that way. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, or Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight I am joined by the full filtrate and a couple of special guests. Dr. David Cohn is an interventional cardiologist and cardiovascular re- outcomes and health services researcher. David, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, yes, I'm David Cohen. I am uh, currently a professor of medicine at the University of Missouri in uh, Kansas City, uh, where I uh, formerly was uh, director of cardiovascular research at St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute as well. I'm an interventional cardiologist, uh, clinical trialist, and outcomes researcher, and I've uh, been involved in the trial that we're going to be discussing uh, for the past uh, 10 years, I would say. And what, what did you do with the trial? Uh, I was part of the uh, organizing committee around the quality of life and the health economics components of the trial. Uh, those are two areas of great interest of mine. Uh, my partner, uh, John Spurtis, uh, uh, developed a lot of the instruments that were used in the quality of life uh, components of the trial, and I uh, helped translate uh, what, he, uh, what he did into English. Excellent. Excellent. And the other guest is Dr. Keith Belovich. He's the secretary treasurer of the Renal Physicians Association and chief medical officer of my hospital. Keith, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Keith Belovich. I'm a nephrologist, been in practice for 25 years uh, with St. Clair Specialty Physicians, where Kidney Boy also practices and um, uh, and had the the fun of assuming that role of chief medical officer of a 700-bed hospital uh, about three months prior to the COVID epidemic. So uh, it was a, a trial by fire by without question and uh, have had uh, spent a lot of time uh, working in public policy before that as well as uh, researching in polycystic kidney disease in kind of all aspects of, of clinical nephrology. And we run a hybrid nephrology fellowship, which is uh, always a lot of fun to... Uh, introduce new ideas and concepts to the next generation. So it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for ha- having me. Excellent. Excellent. And we have the full filtrate, uh, Swapnil. Hi, I'm Swapnil Harmath. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at each Swapnil. Jenny? My name is Jenny Lin. I'm an attending nephrologist and physician scientist at Northwestern University. I tweet at Jenny J. Lin, and for tonight's podcast, I do want to say that I grew up in my research training with some preventative cardiologists on the basic science side. So this is kind of an exciting paper to, to, to discuss. Excellent. Samira? I'm Samira Farouk, a transplant nephrologist at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, and I guess I can add that I was going to be a cardiologist until my intern year, and then I didn't do that. <laughs> and Matt, you must be a cardiologist. You're Duke. That's all they grow there, right? Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Sparks. I'm not a cardiologist, um, although I'm considering a fellowship next year. Uh, I'm, at, I'm at Duke University. Uh, I have a special place in my heart for the renin-angiotensin system. 
um, and also preventing people from um, hurting uh, patients with baclofen. I tweet at, at Nephrosparks. Tonight, we are discussing the ischemia CKD trial. This is a study that fills a hole we've had in nephrology my entire career. Forever, we have known that kidney patients have a high rate of cardiovascular disease. But what we should do with that, with this high risk, has been difficult to understand because they've been, CKD patients have been systematically excluded from trial after trial. And so the very patients that need this information the most were excluded and we really had no good information. And then when we did the trials, things that were a slam dunk like statins in patients with normal kidney function, when we tried them in dialysis patients, in trial after trial, we got non-significant results. Didn't seem to help. And we only were able to show that statins were beneficial uh, in SHARP when we mixed together a population of dialysis and CKD patients not a clean win. And and so we knew that these patients were at high risk. And uh one of the and so we wanted to be aggressive when we approached coronary disease. And so one of the things that I think was my instinct anytime I had a patient who has had any type of uh symptoms or anything that could have been cardiovascular disease, I really pushed to define their coronary anatomy. And now we have a study with where we've looked at that pretty carefully and Certainly didn't get the outcomes, uh, maybe maybe not that we wanted, but we didn't get outcomes that showed a clear win that this was a, an effective strategy. Uh, looks like uh, another negative trial in nephrology. And so I'm pretty excited uh, to look at this. Now, this trial that we're going to talk about is ischemia CKD. And this is kind of a, it was a side trial. Is that a fair statement of a, a larger trial called ischemia that looked at a general population, not a CKD population? Um, and so can we just first get a, an overview of ischemia? David, you want to kind of help bring us up to speed on what ischemia was? Absolutely. Happy to. Um, so ischemia was a, a large multicenter randomized trial of uh, invasive versus conservative management of patients with uh, coronary disease and ischemia on some type of functional test. Uh, this is a very common scenario in cardiovascular medicine and internal medicine patients who present to their physician for whatever reason, they uh, have a, a stress test of some sort, uh, which demonstrates uh, ischemia. And then the question becomes, how should we manage those patients? The background for the ischemia trial uh, really began with the COURAGE trial, uh, which is a trial that I was peripherally involved in, uh, really from the uh, started in the late 1990s and finished in 2007. Uh, that was a trial of patients who had a coronary angiogram uh, and had anatomy that was appropriate for PCI uh, and who were then randomized between PCI and medical therapy. Uh, that trial was designed to test whether PCI in those patients would reduce heart events like death or myocardial infarction, uh, and many people were disappointed to find that it did not. Um, but the day that the COURAGE trial was uh, published, uh, immediately many critics emerged uh, who raised a lot of questions about the trial. Uh, uh, in particular, two questions were, were raised. One was there was no requirement that the patients had ischemia. There was no requirement that the lesions uh, that were seen on the coronary angiogram were functionally significant, uh, which uh, you know certainly is a, a questionable approach. Uh, and the second, and probably even more important criti uh, criticism that was raised uh, was around the uh, issue of uh, cherry picking. Because the patients were enrolled 
uh, after having had a coronary angiogram, uh, there was certainly a perception in the cardiology community uh, that many of the patients who had optimal anatomy for angioplasty were um, treated by the interventional cardiologist. And what was left over were the dregs, if you will. There were patients in whom uh, either the lesions were uh, unlikely to be uh, physiologically important um, or lesions where the chance of getting a good result was uh, too modest. And so there were a lot of concerns that part of the reason why uh, the COURAGE trial did not demonstrate a benefit was uh, enrolling the wrong patients. So was, David, what, what, year did, what year did COURAGE come out? COURAGE came out in 2007. And my sense is it was kind of a, it changed how cardiac caths were done in my hospital. I could just see a significant drop in the number of patients that were going to cardiac cath. Is that something that was noted, was the national trend or was I uh, imagining that? The, I mean, the, there, there have been some national trends that started with courage. There definitely has been a decline uh, in PCI volumes over that same time period. Uh, it probably started a little before courage and then continued through it, but it hasn't been that dramatic. I mean, I think because of this concern, you, maybe your hospital was more uh, receptive to the idea, but the interventional cardiology community and the cardiology community in general, I think was very skeptical of the courage results for the reasons that I mentioned. Uh, the third reason being that drug-eluting stents, which obviously are the mainstay of a PCI treatment today, um, were almost never used in the trial because they only came uh, uh, they only became approved in the United States in 2003, and most of the recruitment had finished uh, by then. So there were a lot of concerns that the trial was just not uh, representative. And so ischemia was designed to you know to really overcome that, and ischemia CKD. Uh, in parallel was uh, designed to meet many of the same criteria. So how did ischemia differ uh, from courage? Uh, a couple of critical factors. Number one is patients had to have ischemia uh, to get into the trial. They had to have a positive stress test and they had to have moderate or severe ischemia, which had specific definitions depending on the modality that was used. So they were supposed to have uh, important hemodynamic, hemodynamically significant coronary disease. Uh, David, David, one. in this in this t trial, they talked a lot about this moderate from and severe ischemia. Are those generally accepted uh, definitions in cardiology, or are they very specific for this trial? They well, they were specific for the trial, but the trial did not. The, the, the judgment as to whether the ischemia was moderate or severe was made at the site. So, in especially in the main ischemia trial, there was a core laboratory that overread all of the nuclear. Uh, and stress echoes and all of those things to determine whether the patient um, qualified and had moderate or severe ischemia. However, um, there were a modest number, because the patients were actually enrolled based on the site reading, there actually were some patients in the trial who had more mild uh, ischemia who should not have technically been in, uh, but were enrolled by the site. So there were definitions. Uh, the sites were supposed to follow the definitions, but there was some disagreement between the core, the core lab and the site readings. Uh, give, that, and get, can you just give me kind of a typical case story for me to get a picture of who would be enrolled in in ischemia? What what does that patient look like? What are they, what are their what are they experiencing? What are their complaints? So the typical ischemia patient was minimally symptomatic, um, and there was a reason for that. Uh, it, the reason for that is because we didn't want to have a lot of crossovers in the trial and the very symptomatic patients. Um, if assigned to medical therapy, there was concern that a lot of them would cross over to revascularization too early and therefore really uh, invalidate the trial. So the patients were, and it ranged from asymptomatic patients who had a stress test and you know that, that, that showed ischemia, which is a common thing that we see in practice, um, to patients with mild symptoms, and then some patients with 
you know, moderate or accelerating symptoms. They could have had, you know, known coronary disease. They didn't have to have known coronary disease to at least get screened in the trial. But these are the kind of patients who are being followed in cardiology offices all around the country. Probably, again, the CKD patients are being followed by all of you guys. Uh, and uh, for whatever reason, they had a funny twinge of chest pain. They're more short of breath. Uh, some doctors like to do, you know, annual or semi-annual stress tests to follow the, uh, these patients. All of those things could get somebody into the trial. So, uh, but they couldn't have very severe symptoms. If they had very severe or accelerating symptoms, they were uh, they were excluded. Um, so that was the you know, the first sort of difference was they had to have this ischemia on a stress test. Uh, the second thing that was done um, was that the patients. Uh, uh, were enrolled before they had the coronary angiogram. So again, as I told you in Courage, the patients were enrolled after the coronary angiogram, which um, led to this concern of cherry picking. So very specifically in ischemia, they wanted to take, uh, make the interventional cardiologist, you know, not aware of what the anatomy was. So the patients were enrolled before the calf. And I want to, um, and, I, and, I, and I want to just be fair to these courage uh, cardiologists. Like we're calling it cherry picking, but these are doctors that said there's no equipoise here. I know I can help this patient by opening up that sure. tight lesion. And so, and when there's no equipoise, the ethical thing to do is to intervene, even if they don't really have the data to support. Right. It's, it's not. It's not even actually. I mean, these are things that were claimed by people who are criticizing the courage trial. It's not actually even clear that there was this cherry picking. There, in fact, was a. Uh, a publication, uh, John Mancini, who ran the core laboratory for the, the Courage trial, uh, published like 100 randomly selected angiograms uh, from the Courage patients to sort of make the case uh, uh, that uh, these patients were, you know, very routine and the kind of patients who you would do angioplasty on any day of the week. Um, and, you know, they, it, it was true. There were proximal OID lesions, there were severe lesions, there were subtotal lesions, there were all kinds of things that we would you know, that any interventional cardiologist would, you know, would intervene on. Um, but, we, you know, we wanted to get rid of that, the, you know, that um, concern. Uh, so no angiograms were done prior to enrollment. What was done, and this is a difference between the main ischemia trial and the ischemia CKD trial, is in the main ischemia trial, all the patients or the vast majority of patients had a CT coronary angiogram prior to enrollment. And this was, this was important in the main ischemia trial for two reasons. Uh, number one is we wanted to make sure that the patients had real coronary disease, epicardial coronary disease. And so the CT angiogram was used as a screen to ensure they had coronary disease. Um, and about 20% of the patients who would have otherwise qualified for the main ischemia trial were excluded on that basis. David, one second. It was it was 20% of people got bumped from the trial after the CT angiogram. Is that what you said, 20%? Correct. In the regular, in the regular ischemia trial, not in CKD. Okay. Because CKD did not have the coronary, the, the CT angiography. Um, but it's relevant, you know, it's relevant to, C, to ischemia CKD because we know, you know, that only about half the patients in ischemia CKD got revascularized. Um, and so that's, you know, that again, it'd be right, right, the relevant right. difference. There's a it reason really for, diluted but, the population there. Yep. Yeah. In the main, in the, you know, in the main ischemia trial, again, you know, we tried to take all these steps to make sure the patients had coronary disease, but not the kind where it would be unethical not to revascularize them. And so those were the, you know, those were the- And, and to be clear, the people that had to get revascularized, you couldn't randomize, was left main disease, is that it? Or left main and triple vessel or something like that? What no, was that? no, it's, it, left main was the only, the only angiographic anatomic exclusion. Okay. Uh, oh, and they also had to have, they also had anatomy amendable to intervention, right? Well, you didn't know because it, you really can't tell that from, the, I mean, you can't always tell that from the, the CT coronary angiogram. And the, the way you can you know, figure that out is if you look at the ischemia trial, again, main ischemia, not ischemia CKD, 
only 80% of the patients in the invasive arm there got revascularized. There were still 20% of people who got through the CT angiogram and did not have revascularizable coronary anatomy um, in main CKD and in main ischemia. It's, uh, so I don't, I don't want to get too, you know, too bogged down in it. I mean, I think really the main thing is to recognize the motivation, which was the concerns about some of the, the holes and some of the perhaps, you know, less than perfect things that were uh, done in the COURAGE trial. And then ischemia was also a bigger trial. It was about twice the size. COURAGE enrolled about uh, 2,300 patients, uh, and ischemia enrolled, uh, it was originally intended to enroll, I think, about 8,000 patients. It ended up enrolling a little over 5,000 patients in the main ischemia uh, trial. Um, so those are kind of, that's kind of the background. Again, I've gone on for a long time. I don't want to dominate no, the that's, conversation. That's, so that's great. I'll let you guys take over. Okay, swap. No, let's let's get down to brass tacks. Sorry, sorry, but before we move on, um, does Courage make anyone else think about Celine Dion's newest album and the name of her tour, <laughs> which is Courage? <laughs> the, uh, if you want to know that the, the Courage trial was not originally named Courage, it was for some reason it was named the Smart trial, but it got changed to Courage somewhere along the way. So. I doubt, doubt Celine Dion would have done the smart tour there. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I, I know she's listening, so Celine, you know, shout out to the podcast. Looking for that retweet, please. please. Yeah, when I, when, yeah. I, when I met her, we, we talked about the podcast, so it's all good. <laughs> she's um, just one of many celebrities that listens to Freely Filtered. It's really, uh, the fan mail is just uh, crushing me. Can I ask a question about um, about you know, some background into how this happened? Because it seems an amazing thing to uh, to do this in patients on dialysis and with with really severe CKD. What I mean, how did this happen? The uh, so ischemia, the main ischemia trial was started first, uh, and uh, and then uh, once that sort of the uh, energy and the sites and all of those things had been enrolled. Uh, Sripal Bangalore, who's an interventional cardiologist at NYU, where the main coordinating center for the trial was, I think he wanted to do a, I mean, he's always had an interest in CKD. He's published some studies looking at CKD and PCI outcomes and those sort of things. Um, uh, he's uh, got, uh, uh, his background is uh, uh, Asian. And so, and we know that especially in India, I think there were a lot of patients with CKD um, uh, that actually constituted a fair amount of the enrollment in the ischemia CKD trial. Uh, so I think he had a lot of sort of background interest in this and thought it would be great. You know, we know that these kind of patients don't get enrolled in any of our, you know, main clinical trials of revascularization. They're not enrolled in the PCI versus CABBAGE trials. They're not enrolled in the trials of how to manage an acute myocardial infarction. They're, you know, they're basically uh, excluded from everything. So we know so little. Uh, and so I think it, you know, and we know the biology is different. So I think it was. Uh, very reasonable to try to, again, to sort of take advantage of the machinery that was already developed uh, and to piggyback a CKD trial on top of the main trial. Well, as nephrologists, we're very well aware of this, and uh, that's why we're very happy and pleased that we have this study to actually have data to bring to our patients uh, and talk to them about the risks and benefits of going for uh, coronary angiogram and potentially revascularization. Swapna, why don't you tell us what they did? Um, So... Uh, the the TLDR version of the methods is that um, they took patients with a GFR less than thirty, uh, whether they had whether they were on dialysis or not. Uh, they had to have ischemia on the basis of uh, some kind of stress testing. As David pointed out, it wasn't a coronary CT because of the risk of contrast uh, induced acute kidney injury, which we know doesn't exist. 
and uh, they were randomized to an invasive. Roman bombs already. Just you just can't help yourself, can you? No wonder you argue all the time. <laughs> My God, how many podcasts do we have to go back to uh, retrace our steps there? Okay. Behave yourself, swap. <laughs> all right. So, so uh, appropriately, contrast was avoided in these patients, and uh, they were randomized to an invasive versus a conservative therapy. Um, now, again, uh, th- this is these are some crucial aspects that we'll cover. One is that the invasive versus the conservative strategy doesn't mean anyone randomized to the invasive strategy got angiogram and uh, angioplasty or a, a cabbage. Uh, they underwent coronary angiography. That was what happened. And after the coronary angiography and not was a, done- and not every time that, for that even. Exactly. And as David pointed out that uh, after the angiography was done, uh, some patients, of course, declined, as we can see from the results, but uh, they had to have uh, suitable uh, coronary anatomy to undergo revascularization. Uh, so a, a, a proportion of the patients randomized to invasive actually got invasive therapy. But again, in, in terms of strategy, it makes sense, right? You, you need to strategize them before you know the results because after you do the angiography, it's sometimes hard with the oculostenotic reflux to avoid um, uh, uh, revascularization. So that's the strategy. But before that, let's talk about the conservative management. So this was optimal medical management. And I found it amazing to look at the optimal medical management. This was really well done. Uh, so patients had to have good lipid control. Uh, so everyone got a statin and they, got, uh, they, were, uh, they had a target for uh, an LDL of uh, less than... I think it was less than 70. Exactly, less than 70 or 1.8. I was trying to convert the, you know, the <laughs> rest of the world units, units into American <laughs> units. Uh, uh, and and uh, if, if they were not a target uh, and it was like a good dose, right? So rosuvastatin 40 or rosuvastatin 80. And then ezetimibe was added if uh, they were not a target. Uh, if they had angina, they got nitroglycerin or beta blockers. Most importantly, uh, for blood pressure, the goal was less than 130. So I don't think there has been any trial done in, in CKD stage four and five uh, on hypertension management, which, you know, this may be the largest uh, uh, such uh, prospectus data that we will have. The target was a systolic blood pressure of less than 130. And remember, this included dialysis patients where you know, we throw up our hands when we talk about what is the optimal uh, blood pressure target. Uh, and they, oh, it, just so, measure, it just depends on when you measure that blood pressure. All my, all my dialysis patients get a blood pressure less than 130 at one point. <laughs> With intradialytic hypotension, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it might not be good for them, but uh, we're getting exactly. that blood pressure down. Um, so, uh, and, and again, this will be cool to see. I'm sure there are some papers coming along later to see what happened with the blood pressure and when it was measured. But the target was less than 130. They started with a beta blocker uh, and an ACE inhibitor, which is also very, very appropriate given the, the data we know about beta blockers and dialysis. Uh, and then the ACE and ARB were increased and a calcium channel blocker, or perhaps sometimes a diuretic, um, if appropriate, was added. So I think this optimal medical management is fantastic. And, and uh, as we can see from the results, uh, this is probably something that we should take home uh, as being uh, desirable for many of our patients. They also had uh, weight loss as part of the OMT, mm-hmm. and they also had a low-fat diet. And what- low-fat uh- was there anything? Was there anything else? To, was that was that the whole? Was there any exercise component to it? I don't remember reading about like an exercise component. Uh, no, neither do I. Okay. Um, so, uh, so, sorry, smoking cessation was the other one. Uh, yep. phys- physical activity more than thirty minutes. Oh, so there was um, a, okay, good. Yeah, physical activity, uh, antiplatelet therapy uh, with um, uh, aspirin or uh, you know pl- uh, clopidogrel if there's a contraindication. Uh, aim for BMI less than twenty-five. Uh, hemoglobin A one C less than eight percent. 
less than seven percent calories from saturated fats. So it was a pretty comprehensive uh, optimal medical. And, and both groups, both groups get OMT. Right. Both groups so both, get optimized medical therapy. Exactly. So both groups get optimized medical therapy, and the invasive group, in addition, gets coronary angiography. Um, and a couple of more things before I hand over to Jenny. Uh, so the population. Uh, it's a little bit trickier than what I said initially. So uh, these were patients with a GFR less than 30, and they had to have moderate or severe myocardial ischemia. And this was on the basis of stress test. So either a nuclear perfusion scan showing uh, more than 10% myocardial ischemia, an echocardiography showing more than 3 out of 16 um, segments with uh, stress-induced hypokinesia, uh, a cardiac MRI with more than 12% uh, myocardial ischemic, or a stress test exercise test without imaging uh, criteria or with some ECG criteria thrown in there. Um, to me, it wasn't clear uh, who would undergo this stress test because uh, it, the patients weren't necessarily selected for being symptomatic, right? So as David pointed out, we are trying to take patients, uh, all CKD patients are at high risk for uh, cardiac uh, disease. So I presume the uh, investigators locally had, you know, some gestalt of saying, hey, you know, these are not fulfilling the exclusion criteria and they may have ischemia. So let's go ahead and do the uh, stress test, which brings us to the exclusion criteria. So uh, as David was discussing, you're trying to exclude the patients who obviously need something uh, or who, who obviously have severe coronary artery disease. So someone with ACS in the last two months, stroke in the last six months, or someone who had had a PCI. But at the other end, you want to exclude patients who are going to have poor outcomes. So those with uh, severe heart failure, ejection fraction less than 35% or uh, NYHA class 3 or 4 symptoms or, uh, or those who have a life expectancy which is less than the trial duration. Uh, I guess when the trial started, they did not know it would drag on for so long. Uh, so this may have been longer, uh, shorter than uh, what they expected. Um, a and, number of people during the chat read those exclusion criteria and they felt like this was not going to be generalizable to their patients. Um, that, what was your that, thoughts there? Yeah, that is true. So most of our patients do have heart failure symptoms and the heart failure part is tricky, right? So uh, many of my patients will have some shortness of breath on, you know, uh, exertion. So it's it's easy to symptomatically put them on the NYHA class three. Uh, at some time during their dialysis, uh, you know, interval, maybe on the on a Monday morning, they will have that kind of shortness of breath. Uh, so I'm not sure how that was, you know, necessarily educate, adjudicated. That must have been presumably the site investigators, uh, again, uh, clinical uh, decision-making process uh, involved there. But yes, most of our patients have, you know, uh, heart failure and, and would fulfill many of those criteria. Being on dialysis means that your you know, median life expectancy is a few years. Um, so, so this is not the average uh, dialysis patient uh, necessarily. Um, outcomes, uh, the primary outcome was a composite of death or non-fatal MI. Uh, unlike the main ischemia trial, kafafal uh, that we won't go into, this primary outcome was never changed. Um, and there were a bunch of secondary outcomes, including a composite of death, non-fatal MI, um, uh, heart failure, uh, the angina-related quality of life, and that is reported in a separate uh, yep. uh, independent paper in the same issue of the journal. Uh, in terms of safety outcomes, which are of interest to us, it was initiation of dialysis and a composite of initiation of dialysis or death uh, because some of the patients were uh, CKD4 or 5 not on dialysis. Um, and for the stats, they, they originally had planned for 1,000 patients, as David mentioned, with a 80 to 95% power to detect roughly a 20% reduction in events. And uh, because of uh, slow recruitment, uh, it was dropped to the 777 that they finally uh, recruited, which still gave uh, uh, an 80% power for a 25, roughly 25% 25 uh, reduction in outcomes, which is not unreasonable 
compared uh, to the original uh, trial and they did get uh, a good number of events uh, and again the trial was funded by the nhlbi um, and i think some funding not funding uh, some pills some medications and stents etc were donated in kind by the uh, by a bunch of different companies and this is like the in the supplement mentions a lot of companies so Uh, i don't think this is a, a big deal because this was donated um, this trial was not done uh, you know with a lot of money so um, presumably with a lot of money i don't know how much total money was spent uh, i read somewhere that it was 100 million dollars but i suspect uh, 90 million may have gone to the main ischemia trial <laughs> perhaps david knows more about that yeah i'm not sure how much of the money was was went to ischemia ckd probably in proportion to the number of patients so about you know probably a 10 or 15 you know 10 or 15% as my guess mm-hmm. i'm not quite mm-hmm. sure right. i was wondering if anyone has any thoughts on um contrast volume I, i saw they had some contrast volume protocol and i'm also asking because um i was with a fellow today and we were doing the contrast induced nephropathy risk calculator and he asked me what he should put in for the contrast volume and um i told him somewhere between 15 and 100 and i was wondering dr cohen if you could comment on kind of what kind of volumes you're using So for for the uh, you know for a general coronary angiogram in a patient like the ischemia CKD patients with a uh, a GFR less than uh, 30, um, most cardiologists today are very conscious of the volume and will, will do what they can to limit it. Um, and so I would say you I mean you can do a a, a coronary angiogram you know a, a very good quality one in 30 or 40 cc's and a you know a PCI you can keep it under 100. Um, there are people who have, you know, made a whole career out of doing, uh, you know, very low contrast to no contrast uh, PCI. Uh, you can do it. It's, it takes some very extreme measures to uh, uh, keep it down that low. But I do know some uh, some colleagues who have, you know, made a specialty of that and have uh, catered to the uh, CKD population. Uh, and they they will do, you know, they will do a whole PCI with 10 cc's of contrast. If, you know, if, you know, depending on the anatomy, they'll use a lot of intravascular imaging and other techniques. Uh, the, inter- the interesting thing when you get down to that volume that's the same amount of volume we'll use when we do an iothalamate um, GFR right we'll give that much contrast just to measure the GFR and they're using that to define the coronary anatomy it's pretty it's pretty amazing that they get down to that lo- that level of d- that dose yeah you just have, you have to try real hard I mean you have to when we do that we do you know we have tricks to keep that like we'll change the size of the syringe that we inject to to a much smaller syringe uh, we will you know very purposefully write down the volume in every single injection so you can just see it building up you literally write it on top on the uh, uh, on the drapes um, and so just lots of lot, lots of tricks to help you remember that every every time you do it even the littlest injection you're, you're you know at least you know depending on which side of the, the argument you're on you, you you may increase the risk of uh, of uh, acute kidney failure. We don't know which side a uh, uh, swaps on. We'll he'll, we'll he'll hold keep his his cards close to his vest and we'll <laughs> find out everything really at the end of the, at the end of the evening see what he thinks about contrast. Not. Just let it go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so on the volume um, uh, I think uh, Sripal Bangalore did reply on that tweet chat saying that they did encourage the the technique David's describing with uh, really low volumes or, or zero PCI. and they gave some training and and uh, education and to I, the people involved probably as a testimony to that i mean the the data in the in the paper indicated that only about 8% of the patients who underwent a pci in uh, in the invasive arm uh, developed the acute kidney injury which given the you know given the gfrs um is pretty impressive so i think yeah, they did absolutely. a good job on that yeah 
What about the uh, heart kidney team? Yeah, that was cool. What was that? What did I don't they, know. How did that function? What was that? I don't know. We were in the ischemia trial, but we did not uh, do very well in the ischemia CKD trial, I will say. Um, but I guess it was to try to, um, in, you know, certainly involve the nephrologist uh, in, the, in the decision around which type of revascularization. I think that's, that was the main role is, you know, it, it largely, you know, can this patient, you know, what's their risk of, of uh, acute kidney injury? What's their risk of uh, requiring dialysis after they undergo bypass surgery, for example, which we know is a, you know, can, can often predict, uh, provoke a very severe AKI. Well, they, they, I think uh, they had twelve percent of patients that ended up going to uh, dialysis after bypass. Like it was a, right. it was an event that triggered a lot of end stage renal disease. Yeah, I mean, we see that with all any kind of heart surgery. We see with aortic valve replacement as well. It's one of the, you know, big advantages of transcatheter aortic valve replacement is just way less kidney injury. Swap. Do you have any more methods, or can we move on to some results? Jenny. Well, as usual, I have to interrupt oh, for capsulology, which is never on the agenda, but nice. you know, it's always <laughs> going to be here. There's um, no so, capsules. <laughs> um, oh, I found some capsules. Um, so, Swap, you mentioned some of the medical therapy, and so I thought I would do a little bit of a um, dive into the P2Y12 receptor antagonists, so the family of um, Clopidogrel, Prazogrel, Cangrelor, Elenagrel. Um, hope I said that how the cardiologists say it. Um, and so just as a refresher, P2Y12 is a component of the adenosine diphosphate receptor, which is expressed on the surface of platelets. Um, and obviously many of our patients that have cardiovascular disease and we have seen are on clopridogrel or Plavix for some period of time. Um, so the, the history of the, um, of uh, Plavix, um, the kind of earlier generation medication was Ticlopidine, which was first discovered in France in the 70s. Um, and it was discovered um, after an attempt to actually find an anti-inflammatory and kind of incidentally had this antiplatelet property that was described. Um, so Plavix was actually approved for medical use in 1997. And something that I found really interesting was that it is on the WHO's list of essential medicines, um, which is a list of what the WHO considers the most effective and safe medications to meet most important needs in a health system. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, and so um, Clopidogrel is a prodrug that's activated by the um, P450 system in the liver, um, and um, namely CYP. 2C19 is uh, one of the more important ones and important because proton pump inhibitors, a drug that many patients are on, actually inhibit this. And so if you are on a PPI and also on um, clopidogrel, you may not be really getting um, therapeutic drug levels. And similarly, patients that have variants of that CYP enzyme may have either sub or super therapeutic levels. So if you have a variant that leads to overactivation, you can actually be at higher risk for, for bleeding. Um, the drug is excreted, um, from what I found, 50% in the urine, 50% in the feces, um, and there are actually no capsules here. These are tablets, and so it comes in 75 and 300 milligram tablets, which are either pink, light pink, or white. Yeah, and I've been genotyped for that variant. What was that? I've been genotyped for the variant. I'm het. I'm a, I'm a het. <laughs> awesome. So that might... Ultra, are the other hopefully, drug, I will never need Plavix, though. <laughs> are the other drugs in that class also pro-drugs or just clopidogrel? Uh, all drugs are pro-drugs except for ticagrelor, uh, ticagrelor and cangrelor. Uh, ticagrelor and cangrelor are direct P2Y12 uh, 
uh, in, inhibitors, so they're absorbed and they are immediately active. Uh, but ticlopidine, uh, clopidogrel, and prasugrel are all prodrugs. Nice. Why do you always have to pimp Samira? What is it? (laughs) No, it's not pimping. I am am literally just a curious attending. So can we we all review the grapefruit juice effect on that P450 system? (sighs) St. John's wort or or grapefruit? St. John's wort is going to uh, upregulate P450 and lower your prograph levels and your cyclosporin levels. And grapefruit juice is going to inhibit it, which is going to raise the levels. And what does it do to the clopidogrel level? It doesn't. It doesn't affect clopidogrel. (laughs) (laughs) The P450, many enzymes, many enzymes. I know that, you know. Which part of the complement system is this? Uh, the last thing I was going to say, I was trying to find many of these drugs have kind of interesting stories about how they were named. So I was trying to see why it has this G-R-E-L, which makes it so hard to pronounce. But because um, that is kind of the the part of the name that all of these drugs in the class share. But um couldn't find anything. Jenny, do we have any results? Nope. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the age of the press release article. Okay. Real There's results. an embargo. There's still an embargo. Um, okay. So I'm going to start with the main punchline and then backtrack yeah, for more great. detailed results. So the primary outcome of death or non-fatal MI occurred in 123 out of 388 patients in the invasive strategy group and 129 out of 389 in the conservative management group. And this amounts to approximately 36% three-year cumulative incidence in both groups with no statistical difference. No statistically significant differences between groups for the secondary outcome were found either. And as a reminder, the secondary outcome was a composite of death, non-fatal MI, hospitalization for unstable angina, heart failure, or resuscitated cardiac arrest, and angina-related quality of life. Okay. So then backtracking, Uh, the study included 777 out of the 802 patients initially enrolled. And so these 777 underwent randomization to the conservative management or invasive strategy groups. These two groups were evenly matched uh, in number and pretty evenly matched in characteristics. And these characteristics included a median age of 63 for the entire group. The majority were male and the majority were also of white race with about 25% Asian representation as opposed to around 8% self-reported black race. Around 61% of all participants had moderate ischemia and 38% had severe ischemia. Um, Almost all of the participants were hypertensive and 57% had diabetes. The median uh, ejection fraction for this group was 58%. And in the invasive group, 51% had ESKD versus 55.8% in the conservative management group. The majority of ESKD participants were on hemodialysis rather than PD. And over 80% of the stress tests performed were imaging-based with only 18.5% undergoing exercise stress testing. Now, in who's terms doing, of- me- Who's doing exercise stress testing still? I, I, I couldn't believe there were 15% uh, of people getting I had to. I had to do a rotation in residency. The, the honest answer is most of the patients who got enrolled with just regular stress tests were from India. Uh, in the uh, so, I mean, it, it may have to do with 
um, what the health system over there can afford. Um, I'm not sure, but I know that for, for the main ischemia trial, it was the same. So the, you know, in the U.S., it's, you know, everybody gets imaging, but uh, okay. other places in the world, not so much. All right. So in terms of medical therapy and whether participants reached uh, risk factor goals, the median LDL was about 83 milligrams per deciliter at baseline when only 35% of patients were at goal. And this came down to a median of 70 by the last visit with 49% at goal. And this was mostly due to an increase in high intensity statin use and the addition of Zetia. A median systolic blood pressure was in the 130s, with the majority of participants reaching the goal of less than 140 by the last visit. In terms of invasive procedures, in the invasive strategy group, 85% underwent coronary angiogram. This is in contrast to the 96% of people in the larger non-CKD ischemia trial um, in the invasive arm. And out of the 15% who did not undergo uh, coronary angio, the most common reasons were death and illness before the procedure could be performed, as well as patient preference. Like that just gives you a sense of how sick the population in this yeah. study was. Like they get ordered to get a cath, and in the 30 days before they can get the cath, they're either dead or sick, too sick to get the cath. It's just, or at least for 15%, of it kind of popped my eyes open when I saw that. Ischemia CKD, 50% of the invasive arm uh, were revascularized, and the vast majority of the revascularization cases were PCI. Out of the 50% of people who did not receive revascularization, the most common reason was a lack of obstructive coronary artery disease despite a positive stress test. And in the conservative group, 32% had underwent cath. Remember, there were no statistically significant differences between the invasive strategy and the conservative management uh, groups for the primary and secondary outcomes. But interestingly, and this could be a point of discussion, the invasive strategy group had a higher incidence of stroke with an adjusted hazard ratio of 3.76, confidence interval 1.52 to 9.32, and a p-value of 0.004. And most of these strokes were more than 30 days out from the procedure and therefore not considered procedural. You think these are related to the antiplatelet agents? Do you think these are hemorrhagic strokes? I don't know. Maybe something related to the PCI or the cabbage? I mean, mean, PCI, if you're going to, I mean, you don't get a stroke a month after Mm -hmm. PCI from, I mean, this stuff doesn't rattle around that long. I mean, cabbage, you could because you're, you're, you know, clamping the aorta and other, other, other sorts of things. I mean, my my own guess is it's more a fluke than anything else. Um, it, I mean, it's hard to explain it with the timing. I mean, the antiplatelet therapy. I mean, you can, uh, you know, certainly if you're on dual antiplatelet therapy, it does increase the risk of ICH. Um, but it's not a very, you know, it's it's nowhere near, uh, at least in norm in, in other patients, it's not you know a five percent risk. But maybe CKD patients are different, and maybe they're you know metabolizing the, these drugs differently, and they're having higher risk. But it, I would have thought it was all you know, somebody would have commented if it was heavily driven by uh, uh, intracoronary hemorrhage as opposed to hmm. thromboembolic uh, events. The one thing to, to remember, though, only 50% had revascularization in the invasive arm, right? So right. Uh, right. and the stroke numbers were... Um, Intention to treat, yeah. About 10%. Like, is there a subgroup analysis looking at, did those strokes occur in the ones with intervention without? Right, right, there, and, there and as treated. Like post cabbage or something, if they uh, right. Because right. look at the, the conservative arm was none, just about zero. I mean, just a few handful, and then you have ten percent in the invasives. So I think that's an important thing to to know. It was you know six point four versus one point six, so a fourfold excess. Yeah. 
I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's very statistically significant, just hard to explain, but uh, important to know. Jenny, the, the next paragraph. Okay. <laughs> no, because this one, this next paragraph I wrote, I, I wrote, this paragraph is so damning. I kind of feel like if I read, read this paragraph to my patients, no one would go for calf. It just said, the incidence of death or initiation of dialysis in patients who were not receiving dialysis at baseline was higher in the invasive strategy group. I kind of feel like this is the thing that my patients are most terrified of, death and dialysis. And it, that's a, just a, a rough sentence to get past. Sure. And if you take a look at supplemental figure nine, you can see that the line for the cumulative incidence of these outcomes is higher in the invasive group for the first two and a half years, and then they kind of converge at year three, uh, there was a hazard ratio of 1.48 and a p-value of 0 0.03 uh, for that outcome. And this pattern holds true for the incidence of new dialysis, although the p-value for that was 0 0.14, but it follows a similar trend. There, those who had received a cath in the study had around an 8% contrast-induced nephropathy rate in the invasive strategy group, and after cabbage, Initiation of dialysis uh, led to an incidence rate of 11 to 12.5%. Um, so the invasive strategy was trending towards a better outcome in severe cases. And then there were also differences in ejection fraction and EGFR, although looking through the supplement, I wasn't able to find those specific data, but it is mentioned in the te main text. It's a, yeah, it's a weird looking graph that I had a hard time interpreting for the, um, uh, the, the ejection fraction and the... Um, they, they didn't dichotomize it, right? So it's, it's the yeah. last two. Um, it's a continuous reading. Figure. It's a continuous reading. Oh, oh yeah. They, the, uh, the, the lead statistician for the trial or the lead consulting statistician is this guy, uh, Frank Harrell. You guys see him on Twitter. Frank oh, yeah. Super smart. Um, <laughs> yeah, dichotomization <laughs> is his enemy. Yes. <laughs> one of his pet peeves is dichotomization of, uh, of uh, explanatory variables. And so that's, that explains why it's, you know, it's a spline curve uh, looking at the EGFR as a continuous variable. Okay. Okay. And in terms of angina-related health outcomes, there were no significant differences, and this differed from the non-CKD trial. Right. And they also, again, showed a trend in the patients with the most severe ischemia. If I, am I got that? Oh, those people with the most severe angina symptoms to begin with did seem to show a benefit, at least initially. So if you uh, separated them out by uh, the frequency of angina, patients that were having angina uh, uh, once a week or more uh, tended to do better with an invasive or trended towards better with an invasive uh, technique, at least initially. Right. And the, I mean, but I mean, you know, a number of caveats on that, mostly being that there were, you know, relatively few patients. I think there were about 150 total uh, patients who had uh, daily or weekly angina going into the trial. So it was a really small subset. And the benefit that was seen uh, was not durable uh, in that, even in that subset. Okay. Keith, how, how, how does seeing this type of information kind of change your approach when you talk to a patient who, uh, you know, a dialysis patient who is coming in with chest pain, uh, but you would talk to them and it's just, it's, a, it's the same chest pain they've been having for months. Well, it's the, it's the situation that we've known for years, right? That how much, how much advantage, how much benefit do we really glean from recommending these interventional procedures in our dialysis population, I think what we're I think we're looking at two different disease states. One is the atherosclerotic disease. The other one is that 
medial calcification, that calcification that's happening broadly, not just in the coronary beds, but everywhere. Hence the reason why you may be seeing that uptick in stroke following this intervention. It's just, these are very stiff vessels that we're dealing with. And sometimes irritating them uh, is not the best, is not the best medicine in that regard. So I actually was not surprised by the trial and, and the finding in these patients with very advanced stages of CKD. Um, and so how do I approach my patients is you really want to look at what is their long-term net benefit uh, of providing that intervention. Uh, as mentioned earlier, that opportunity for intensive control is something that we rarely achieve. We, we strive for commonly, but rarely achieve. And we realize that in those that you know you're going to have a real challenge in getting to those optimal medical targets, you might have to provide some level of, of intervention. But the vast majority probably would benefit with very good, very good uh, medical management. And we still are still struggling with what is the optimal dialysis care that we're supposed to be providing as well. I mean, we still struggle with that. That's a whole nother, a whole nother podcast, right? So, oh, yeah. so uh, one group of people that this comes up all the time with, the people that are relatively stable that we push for angiography or defining their anatomy is patients that are on the transplant list. Samir, how's, what is, what's the policy at NYU in terms of evaluating uh, patients for coronary disease? Um, well, I don't know about NYU. Um, oh, Scott, I'm sorry. About uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, um, so I, I would Dr. say... Smear, Dr. Farouk, my name is Joel Toff. Nice to meet you. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I would say I think, uh, I don't think our center is, is different, but I think most transplant centers are relatively on the conservative side. Um, and everyone wants that, you know, kind of clean cardiac clearance. And so even in the patient without any symptoms, um, we often see that patients, you know, just be, with a history of diabetes or on dialysis for a couple of years, even totally symptom-free, um, will end up having a cardiac cath plus minus PCI and, um, you know, everything that kind of comes with that. Um, and there's been a lot of debate within our, our community about whether or not that's the right thing to do. And I, I think we just don't know. Um, there's not, I don't think, great data. I think there have been smaller studies that have looked at it. Um, but for now, our practice has not really changed. Um, and we do, the majority of our patients go to our in-house cardiologist, which most of those patients end up getting cardiac cath. And in a rare occurrence where it's, a, it's another cardiologist that is outside of our institution, if they say the patient is, is clear, then, then we'll accept that. Um, and then um, not only kind of the initial evaluation, but once they do get the cardiac clearance, someone waiting for a deceased donor transplant that has maybe, you know, in New York City, eight to 10 years to go before they're going to be at the top of the list, how often do we kind of redo that clearance? Is it every year? Is it every two years? Do we wait for symptoms? What does that depend on? And so it's a very kind of gray area and something that I struggle with when I'm seeing, you know, these patients that are on the wait list for their five-year follow-up and their cardiac clearance was three to five years ago. What do I do with that? I know they're on dialysis. I know that's a strong cardiovascular risk factor, but they're telling me that they feel the same. What does that really mean? And so I think we don't really have any answers, and, but we are doing a lot of cardiac caths, at least for the initial evaluation. Gosh, I, I feel like this type of study, especially when you're talking about a primary transplant, where you say, hey, this intervention does not help these patients, 
and is going to increase their risk of death or dialysis. Why are you pushing these patients to do this? If they are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic with their coronary disease, we're not getting a benefit here and you're really putting them at risk. Yeah, uh, and there's a uh, nephrologist from uh, UK, uh, from Birmingham, who's made, uh, who wrote an editorial in, uh, or a commentary in AJKD called Adnan Sharif saying you should, be, you should abandon this practice. You should not be screening for coronary artery disease in asymptomatic uh, dialysis patient. Uh, you know, by doing this, we are delaying a kidney transplant or sometimes probably even denying a kidney transplant to some of our dialysis patients. He, he's talked about doing a trial and uh, in the Twitter conversation on the British NFJC, Andrew Sharp, uh, who's a cardiologist, replied that, you know, it, the trial would take a huge number of patients, even if it's a non-inferiority trial. And all of us have these anecdotes, right? I still remember vividly one of my dialysis patients who got a transplant and had a post-op MI. Uh, needing an emergency cabbage. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, these these things stick with you. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, what does not stick with you is the is a dialysis patient who never got a transplant because of the of the workup that they had. And um, we all know that is truly the intervention that will impact their cardiovascular outcome is restore their GFR back to some some element of normalcy. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. The, the, the intervention for a patient with coronary artery disease on dialysis is a kidney transplant. And in this trial, I was rather impressed, too, that the ejection fractions were all well-preserved, you know, in the 58% range across the board. So it's kind of that case where uh, we're clearing those patients for transplantation as long as the EF is preserved, regardless of the anatomy, because it's very hard to interpret that coronary anatomy in someone who's got a lot of, as we say, vintage on dialysis. It's going to look... Uh, very erratic, uh, but it's not all, it's not endothelial disease. It's, it's medial disease. Dr. Cohen, do you have any thoughts on these patients that, you know, get that initial clearance and then they're waiting for five to 10 years? What would be your recommendation about when to kind of do a re-cardiac eval? Well, I think with the data uh, that we've seen, I mean, I, I mean, I, the, the, you know, there's two questions here. What's the warranty period on a, you know, on a cath? Uh, in a dialysis patient or a, a pre-dialysis patient or, you know, whoever, whoever it is is getting a, a, a kidney transplant. Um, we usually, for other conditions, think that about a year is how long the, you know, the warranty lasts. And so, you know, technically, I would say, you know, you, I mean, if you're, if you're, you know, if you've gone more than a year, uh, you're, you know, they're not really, you know, you don't, you don't have any assurance that they haven't progressed. We know they progress very rapidly. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, I would say these data plus other data that we've accumulated over the years make many of us think, why are we doing, you know, I mean, what you all said, which is why are we doing the angiogram in the first place? What are we looking for? What are we trying to accomplish by that? We know there are trials, you know, there was a trial called CARP done uh, in the early part that sort of 2000, 2005, somewhere in there, uh, which was a trial of coronary revascularization versus not uh, for patients with positive stress tests prior to undergoing major non-cardiac surgery, which showed no benefit. Um, so that, you know, that trial would suggest what are, you know, that we shouldn't be doing routine stenting in these patients, uh, to get them through the surgery, to get them through the, the transplant surgery. Now we have a trial that says we're not going to prevent late events, uh, in it. So to me the you know, this is the, the exact right time for you guys all to kind of go back to the drawing board and see if you can, you know, write some sensible guidelines, uh, that will help your patients and, you know, and, and lead to less, you know, less need for dialysis because they won't be coming there as, as quickly. So I, I mean, I think the time is exactly right. We've got enough data now to sort of 
deal with both sides of that equation. Okay. So, so are, we, are we ready to make that decision? Um, because, uh, and I, I am, uh, I, I think uh, we have been, you know, my bias is towards going ahead. Um, the the numbers, with, with the discussion of the trial, there is a Canadian uh, Australasian uh, screening kidney transplant trial, CARSK, KARSK. But that's not even uh, on waitlisting patients. This is on patients who are already waitlisted, whether they should be screened again on an annual basis, because I guess that's often the practice is that these patients get screened again and again until they get the kidney transplant. So it's like we are looking for reasons not to transplant patients anyway. Uh, but this trial is looking at whether the strategy should be to rescreen them or not screen them. And this has a sample size of 3,300 patients. Uh, supposed to start last year and, and again with COVID I think everything's on hold so who knows you know if, if ischemia had so much trouble enrolling 7,000 patients I'm not sure um, this kind of trial uh, will uh, will go through so it's I, I agree with David that maybe it's the time for us to get together and uh, make some sensible guidelines. I know uh, we could probably talk about this online I do want to get to uh, kind of this week in COVID does anybody have any last uh, minute thoughts uh, to wrap this up? The, the sheer uh, uh, effect of optimal medical management. I don't think we yeah. do enough opti- optimal medical management. I, I struggle to give even statins to uh, many of my patients, uh, though I'm a believer in statins. Uh, but, you know, the blood pressure uh, measurement, the, the statin targets, uh, all that, the beta blocker use, I think those are the lessons for us. Uh, that's what we should take home. And the angiotensin blockade in late stage CKD. They didn't get great participation with ACE inhibitors. I think it was only 40% of patients that ended up on ACE inhibitors. Because Matt the, wasn't part the, of the study. <laughs> the, uh, the, other, uh, I mean, the other point that I think just we should not lose sight of is uh, that there still are you know, indications for revascularization of patients with coronary revascularization in uh, CKD patients. And pre- predominantly, uh, they're the same ones that we have now for patients with stable coronary disease without CKD, which is if you have refractory symptoms. I mean, that still is main indication. Those patients were not in this trial. Uh, we did see in the trial um, short-term benefit uh, in the most you know, severely symptomatic, and those patients weren't even all that symptomatic. There, there are many worse patients than that. So I think we should not be afraid to uh, send patients to CAT who have truly refractory symptoms. It's, it's they're definitely worth an, uh, worth an attempt to manage them medically because there are consequences, as we've seen here. Um, but in the patients who don't stabilize with, you know, a beta blocker and a, a calcium channel blocker, you know, send him to the cath lab with somebody who's experienced who will use minimal contrast um, still isn't a bad thing to do in those cases. Okay, excellent. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've talked about COVID. And I really, this is one of the reasons I wanted to have uh, Keith on because he's been, uh, he was uh, riding that bull as we, as Detroit went through its peak. And it feels like we're about three or four weeks past that peak. Is it three weeks past our peak? Uh, in Detroit, what were kind of the key lessons that you you saw? What kind of uh, what kind of solutions did uh, St. John has to have to come up with on the fly to manage this from a nephrologist standpoint? Yeah, well, everything that they talked about in the NTDS webinar to prepare us for that was certainly very accurate. And then who knew that we were going to get overwhelmed by the amount of volume of cases and the need to really re-engineer dialysis dosing uh, because there just weren't enough hours in the day and enough uh, staff that remained healthy and enough machinery to go around. So uh, in order to shorten treatments, as well as uh, do pairing up CRT machines, whoever thought of, of pairing up and, and doing uh, CRT treatments and then breaking it down and, and, and giving so out the mean, next when treatment. Mean, when you mean pairing up, you're talking about doing like a, a, a with a PERT therapy, this is the prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy, you were running two patients with one machine 
Exactly. So, uh, it's obviously not simultaneously, but over 12 hour shifts. <laughs> not simultaneously. Well, Good safety tip there. Don't do that simultaneously. Make sure. Uh, you- the reason I emphasize is Ascension St. John was one of those places where they uh, came up with the concept of doing uh, two ventilators for a single patient. So, no, that, no, that- two patients, single ventilator. Yeah, single ventilator, two patients. Yes, exactly. And actually flew to FEMA in order to help help them guide that in the early stages. But fortunately, we never reached that stage uh, in, during our time. But certainly, uh, we had an overwhelming. We converted from a usual facility of forty ICU beds to eighty ICU beds in a matter of uh, a few days. It was, which is a Herculean effort to have that many patients uh, ventilator supported. And as you have talked about here, the degrees of renal injury that we've seen with this disease was was also overwhelming across. And the one problem is that we provide the, the acute dialysis, not just for our hospital, but for uh, seven other hospitals in our community. And our entire community was affected by the disease. So we were really overwhelmed with the uh, attempt to, to deliver dialysis and how, how did you how did you ramp up like nursing services? That seems like that that you know getting an extra machine is 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 not nearly as difficult as getting an extra person that's trained in this. You know what were you, what were you doing to to staff up? Yeah, and and that was uh, mandatory overtime and long hours. Unfortunately, that really was the only thing you could do, and that was probably the largest group of associates that that suffered illness as well. Uh, We know because sitting there confined in an ICU, uh, we do not have remote monitoring per se. And so sitting at the bedside for prolonged periods of time in the environment surrounded by COVID, uh, we did have acute uh, dialysis nurses that became symptomatic and some that got uh, uh, acutely ill. So our our manpower also uh, fell short. I know those that had uh, rather than local dialysis providers, but had uh, national dialysis providers shipped in extra nursing staff from other places in the country that weren't as hard hit and were able to staff up by looking at outside resources. Uh, we were able to pull in ICU nurses from our hospital system that weren't affected by the illness within the state and also from other states came in to help in our ICUs but and, and to run our CRT machines. Do you think uh, we could have done better with uh, PPE, uh, cappers, et cetera, for the dialysis staff? Is it something that you're thinking about doing going forward? Certainly, uh, we all know uh, about the PPE shortages that we encountered during the disease. So going forward, I'm sure we will never get caught again yeah. as a country. And that was that was a national tragedy, not just within our own health system. I would love to also advance, if we could, into more remote monitoring and, and automation of of the acute dialysis bedside treatment, but these are things that we still don't have the technology for at this point in time. Well, it seems like uh, being able to uh, have more CRRT rather than hemodialysis, where you have a nurse that has to be in at the bedside. Where you, I mean, we were on the you know the CRT machine. Once you set it up, you can kind of walk away from it. You don't have that constant exposure with the dialysis nurse, right? And in Again, when you have a pandemic, uh, unfortunately, that became a demand across the country. Mm -hmm. So we were all uh, looking for CRT solutions in order to solve that. So and machinery. So uh, we were very they were very accommodating in in ramping up, but uh, no one was prepared to see the the credible amount of disease that that hit our community and some of the other communities around around the country. 
So, so Detroit was um, kind of on that front edge. I mean, not the very front edge. We're not Washington. We're not, uh, but we kind of exploded at the same time as New York. It, what, what kind of things do you, what kind of lessons now do you have that you'd want to project to communities that may be seeing their peak in two weeks, three weeks? I'm looking at you, George. I'm looking at you, North Dakota, right? What, what, what kind of lessons do you think did, did you, could you do pick up here? Data, 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 watching the trends and, and ramping up. It was interesting to watch our emergency department colleagues having firsthand knowledge by just talking to their friends across town. And literally, the wave occurs in a very slow, methodical fashion. It truly is a wave. Um, and those on the west side of the city were seeing a surge and then that surge would come into the central part of the city, and then we saw it on the east side. It's interesting where our hospital is located. We have a lake to our east, so uh, we can't get patients from the east from side. Of, side. <laughs> of, so I think that was one of the reasons why we were a little bit on the tail end, but eventually the wave did catch up and 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 and, and hit us just as hard, but almost on a day to two, and. On the tail end, on the downside of that curve, we also saw the same thing where they started to ease up in the volume of acute cases while uh, we were still surging. Uh, And then eventually it it tailed off. One of the things that I started seeing this week really for the first time is a, a significant number of admissions where COVID is part of their past medical history. I am seeing patients getting admitted now that had previously been admitted with COVID. And I don't think these are people with reinfections. I think these are people that never cleared the disease from their primary infection. They were admitted at the beginning of the epidemic. They were stabilized. They were off oxygen. They were sent home. And now they're coming back with, you know, it's sometimes they're routine stuff. Maybe it's a fall. I've seen a patient with a fall, but I've seen a number of patients with altered mental status. And I think that there's, I think there's some COVID encephalopathy that, you know, when you're so focused on the lungs and the ARDS and the acute in the acute condition, you may miss the fact that they're not quite right in the head and they go home and, you know, they're coming back with DKA because what they're, they're not taking their insulin, you know, and, and I'm seeing, I'm seeing that kind of second wave. Are you hearing that from other providers? Uh, there's no question the acute illness, they were all encephalopathic mm-hmm. and that was one of the telltale signs. Um, it was an interesting uh, and, and I don't know how many of you have experienced uh, as many cases as we had here. It was the early phase of the upper respiratory infection and fever, and then it kind of dissipated, and they actually would improve. They, they were confused acutely. They didn't slightly improve. And then in day seven to 10 is where they start to become profoundly hypoxemic, very rapidly deteriorated, and then into the respiratory failure at that point in time, and then a very slow recovery. The average length of stay for that patient that had multi-system organ failure probably on the tune of uh, 20, 20 some odd days. They're usually in the hospital for about three weeks. So as you're taking on new acute cases, but you have these other cases that you're supporting, that's how we saw this tremendous explosion in the need for ventilatory support and, and the creation of ICU rooms in places, unfortunately, Dr. Cohen, in, in a cath lab. Uh, we converted our post-cath care area into an ICU and used every single 20 of those rooms as, uh, as, as the ICU. And hats off to our associates to be innovative. Samira, what's your alone at other places that did the same? Yeah. Samira, how's, how's New York now? I think, you know, it's kind of similar to what you're seeing. We, we hit our peak and um, kind of in a plateau, maybe getting a little bit better. Um, I think from a nephrology standpoint, I feel like we can breathe a little bit. Um, the dialysis loads um, are 
slowly trickling back to what's normal. Um, all of our sentences are still on the on the larger side, still not back to what our we would consider our baseline. We still have um, extra sentences that are set up. We have extra attendings, extra fellows in-house to deal with the load. Um, but it seems like we are slowly kind of drifting back to some level of normalcy. Excellent. Good. Uh, we got a, we have a, a couple, well, at least one important publication. We have a, a first remdesivir publication in the Lancet. Is that the, is that the first one that's actually published? The first trial that has been published. There was first another trial. one that oh, that's was published right. we, before, uh, which got some enthusiastic response. I'm, I'm not familiar yeah. with that one. <laughs> Yes, I I misspoke and I had too much enthusiasm on a Friday night for a trial and I reminded it was not a trial. It was not a trial. That is true. It was uh, uh, it was uh, Gilead talking about their their experience with a compassionate use. That's right. And I was a little too enthusiastic with that, and no one will let me forget that. Uh, but now we have a we have a trial. This came from China, published in the Lancet. It was placebo controlled. And uh, what was all? Why, why are we all excited about remdesivir? What did this show? So this trial was negative. It was negative. There was no. <laughs> what was the primary outcome here? Was it a? Was it a viral load? I think was probably outcome. Am I right on that? Viral load wasn't, but viral load was negative, uh, and the trial was underpowered because they couldn't recruit patients halfway into it. Um, I, think it was a, I think it was an ordinal, an ordinal um, outcome of uh, severity of disease was the, mm-hmm. the, the primary um, gotcha. the clinical scale clinical scale uh, and uh, and no no benefit at all and on the same day that that's released in the Lancet we got a re- we got a press release from Gilead saying that they had a thousand person study uh, that did meet its primary outcome and their primary outcome in that one was length of uh, length of illness right Right. But it wasn't that technically a Gilead study. It was a Tell NIH me, study. Yeah, yeah, but 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 Gilead did leak the news earlier before uh, before the Oval Office did. And they had <laughs> and they, okay, so Gilead leaked the study, but it's a, it was a, um, a uh, an NIH sponsored trial. Mm-hmm. Right. And do we have any idea when we're going to see that data? Your guess is as good as mine. We don't. Oh. Know. Yeah. We don't. Know. But again, I, I you know I've been pushing you on Twitter about that a lot. Uh, but this was, you know, they scrambled to put this trial together uh, and kudos to them. Uh, there is some question about the outcome being changed from uh, an ordinal scale to hospitalization. Uh, but, you know, when they started the trial, they didn't know how, what kind of a disease this was and what kind of an effect remdesivir would have. Uh, and there's something that came out later this evening showing that the uh, change in outcome was not done by people who knew what the data was looking like. Oh, interesting. So, so, so it, it, it looks legit, but still, you know, I would like to see the adverse effects. I would like to see a table one and a figure one. triple blinding. And we're now blinding the study designers also. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. And, uh, and uh, any other big news in COVID? Um, so the, um, uh, again, you know, this is the cardiac uh, renal, uh, cardiac kidney uh-huh. sort of uh, discussion. There was an ASN webinar earlier today. Uh, on AKI and uh, Anita Vijayan, uh, Jay and Michael Hung and Jay Coiner talked about the clotting issues. Uh, but then after that, Sumit Mohan uh, from uh, Columbia and uh, uh, JC Velez from uh, Auctioner um, talked about uh, ramping up AKI, uh, you know, exactly what Keith was talking about of how they how they switched the CRRT and what they did with the PIRRT, etc. The interesting thing they mentioned is both of them, uh, there are problems that we hadn't anticipated that happened. So yes, machines, 
dialysate fluid, uh, dialysate consumables, but also human beings. So trained nurses, they, there was a shortage of nurses and they got some agency nurses, but then CRRT is so complicated that it's hard to, you know, train people suddenly. So independently, both of them reported that the people they found who were best at doing this were uh, cardiac perfusionists. Oh, uh, yeah, sure. That makes so, a lot of sense. Uh, they, I, I don't think they had planned it, you know, because well, these, none, of them could, are, see, none of them are doing cabbages, right? That, that's a exactly. popular, they're just sitting exactly. at home. Yeah, huh. so, so they were like people who could really understand what was the, the complicated CRRT machine and they could be trained quickly to, to do CRRT. It was an interesting nugget. And the other was the clotting was a definite problem. Uh, we saw an overwhelming amount of clotting of our machinery and, and burning through cartridges merely through the hypercoagulability. Uh, so it's very important to have uh, the anticoagulation on board where possible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 the the just the clotting elsewhere. You know, pulmonary embolism and microclots, and possibly that's part of, part of the encephalopathy is these microclots in the brain. Uh, it's a, it's a real, it's a real issue. Does anybody have anything else? This is, we've gone long here. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate everybody uh, joining us. Um, and it, it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't ask the lin- listeners to go to iTunes and rate and review us. Now, only if you like us, I don't want anybody going to iTunes and giving us one star. Okay. And so if you like us, go ahead and give us five stars. And since I asked for that, I'm sure we'll get a ton of one-star reviews. Uh, and, and, but uh, we, we would appreciate this. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And uh, uh, be safe out there. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Thanks for having me.